gentlemen, we all come here for the meeting, and we've had a lot of good horse playing, a lot of fun. We have a very, very fine chap, a man who needs no introduction to all of us, a man at the 1964 Battlefield Tour, the Siege of Port Hudson, Mr. Fred B. Benton, Jr. And there's one thing about this 260th meeting that's different from all, you know, this is the Passover. Why is this night different from all others? Well, this night is different from all others because here's a man who's coming up to speak, bringing all of this equipment, and in his letter he says, I'm going to pay my own expenses. And here's a very unusual and a very swell guy, Mr. Fred Benton, Fred G. Benton, Jr. of Baton Rouge, Louisiana. Thank you. The importance of the Mississippi Valley, the great heartland of North America, was readily apparent to strategists in the North and South. To protect the Mississippi Valley, the Confederate High Command in the late summer of 1861 established a defensive line anchored on the Mississippi River below Columbus, Kentucky, behind fortifications at Island Number 10 on the Chickasaw Bluffs north of Memphis, Tennessee. The center of the line was protected by two forts, Henry on the Tennessee River and Donaldson on the Cumberland River. Of course, two forts were below New Orleans. The conquest of the Great Valley had become a subject of considerable discussion in the press. Particular interest was noted in the Northwest states who wanted the river open for navigation. Of course, this is a quotation from Ed Beer's new book. I'm going to try to quote from scholars and authors. I'm a lawyer, and my job on Fort Hudson has been to try to do things in the legislation with the government, with the governor, and with people like T. Harry, who has furnished us with a student who wrote a book. And I don't come here tonight as a great uh, scholar or historian. I'm going to come with pictures, because we're trying to take the history out of the books, and we're trying to put it before people. We're trying to put it into schools. And you're going to find that part of this story tonight is really aimed more at children. But I think you'll enjoy it, because you'll see the type of story that we're trying to tell. Now, the first part of this story, we're going to divide it into two parts. The first part is going to be to try to relate what happened at Port Hudson and Vicksburg to what happened in Virginia. Now, you know both of these stories very well, but have you integrated these stories day by day and hour by hour? And that's what I want to do first. So number two, I want to give you this little uh, narrated uh, with uh, sound effects to sort of jazz it up for the kids. And actually, the adults back home have liked this too. We've taken out the slides that we usually use because we usually try to animate the story. And in this case, we're going to use the photographs the remarkable number of photographs that General Banks had taken of this battlefield. <coughs> In between, I'm going to show you a few pictures of what's happening at Port Hudson now. I hope this uh, Mickey Mouse setup works. Uh, the filaments hold out. It's going to take me just a moment to get set up here. And I'll start again. Turn the lights, please. February of 1862, lightning really did begin to strike along the Mississippi River Valley with the fall of Fort Henry and Donaldson. April the 2nd, Farragut passes the forts below New Orleans. Four days later, Shiloh, island number 10 on the first day of Shiloh. The month of May is simply a race up the Mississippi River. Here's Port Hudson, and here is St. Francisville. And this is Pockets Island. Baton Rouge and Natchez fall. Vicksburg is ordered to surrender, but they refuse. June the 6th, Memphis falls. And by June the 27th, the deep water fleet is below Vicksburg, and they start digging a canal across DeSoto Point. They dig through June and the end of July, and they give up and fall back to Baton Rouge, and they're followed by the CSA Arkansas. And she starts to attack the Union fleet and a coordinated attack on the Union forces at Baton Rouge, and she's scuttled in the river. It appears here. From that time on, the Confederates controlled the river. They, of course, Farragut had it there for two months, and then they fell back. Confederates fell back to Port Hudson, and between Port Hudson and Vicksburg, for about six months, the Confederates substantially controlled the river. In the month of December, Baton Rouge is reoccupied by Union troops who had departed shortly after the first battle of Baton Rouge. And Van Dorn changes Grant's plans by burning his supply base at Holly Springs. He sends Sherman down the river, and he, checks, he attacks Chickasaw Bluffs on December the 29th. Grant is back himself at Vicksburg, and by January the 25th, he started his men digging. Back on the old canal, it started, was started by Williams. Dr. Melanie and I were looking for the canal. We found this the other day. Quite a, I'm sure that most of you have seen this. It's rather deep depression on this side. This picture was taken about a month ago. 
by, finally, by February 1st, 1863, the Federal Navy attempts to regain control of the river, and they run the Queen of the West to fight the Vicksburg batteries. The Queen of the West is then captured 13 days later in a little town called Marksville. The day before she was captured, another ironclad, the Indianola, had run the batteries at Vicksburg, but of course, the Queen of the West was captured, and within 11 days, the Confederates manning the Queen of the West, Grand Era, and the Webb proceeded to capture the Indianola. And three days later, Porter sent this big fake ironclad by the bluffs and frightened the Confederates into blowing up the Indianola. On March the 14th, Farragut decides it is time for a real sailor to put some ships between Vicksburg and Fort Hudson. He runs the battle. All of his ships are driven back for two, but he's accomplished the objective. By now, General Banks has determined that he's going to have to bypass Fort Hudson, and he resolves to follow this line of works, follow this river system parallel to the Mississippi River. Now, Fort Hudson is right here. That ridge starts marching down here to Donaldsonville, down by Lafourche. And here's Donaldsonville, and there's by Lafourche. Another part of his army starts from New Orleans across this way to join forces at Berwick City. By March the 29th, General Grant has determined on a plan to establish a beachhead at Bruinsburg. And he sends the 13th Corps south through the flooded Louisiana farmlands, marching in this direction. His plan was to establish the beachhead and then go to Fort Hudson, utilizing the 20,000 troops of McClernand's Corps. The Duck Fort Canal was begun on April the 1st. On April the 10th, General Banks has crossed most of his, most of his troops across Barwick Bay. And we're looking at this picture here, looking south, right here at Morgan City or Berwick City. Now, the Confederates are right across the river, about down the road about seven miles, at this place right here. And they have set up strong fortifications. General Banks then sends about a third of his troops by steamboat through Grand Lake to land in behind the Confederates. Now, you have to visualize this country down here. This entire area is just a long peninsula sticking up above the marsh and the swamp and the lakes. General Taylor, Richard Taylor, son of President Taylor, had his army down there on the far end of that peninsula, and a third of the Union troops, even that third outnumbered his army, was landing behind him. They were landing behind him, and he knew it. He fought a battle at Fort Bessler, while he sent part of his forces back. I want you to notice very carefully this Irish bend. See that big bend there? I watched in this aerial photograph, you can see the same big bend here. Now, the Union troops landed and walked down this shell road. And if General Grover had been a real fighter, and a better general, he would have marched around this way and trapped the Confederates. But he made a mistake and came this way. And they fought the Battle of Irish Bend on Nurson's Woods right in here. You can still see the woods because there's still a swamp out there. Now, I have a picture here of what it, oh, don't. Where, where, the, uh, where the troops landed, they landed by this Oakwan plantation. Any of you who are old house buffs uh, will know that this is one of the most beautiful houses in the United States, and that's where General Grover's troops came ashore, right at this house. Within a couple of days, the salt works at Avery Island were destroyed. This is the position on this big map right here. They sent a task force of cavalry down there and burned the salt works, which of course was a very important thing to the Confederates. By April the 16th, the Union troops were marching in front of the shadows on the text. This is a mansion owned and operated by the National Trust for Historic Preservation, and the, and the description of the scene was as follows. Suffocating clouds of dust stirred up by thousands of marching feet added to the miseries of the men. They resembled an army of gray-brown ghosts with their eyelashes and hair loaded with dust, their faces a mass of grime and sweat, and their blue uniforms soon the color of the ground over which they marched. On raw blistered feet, through swirls of blinding dust, the soldiers pushed toward Lafayette. Plus, the Confederates were retreating rapidly. They had escaped the trap. They were now marching toward Alexandria along the dotted line here on the big map, Alexandria being up here. On that same day, General Grant had put into motion 
and planned. And it started back in March when he sent McClernand south. On this day, he sent eight gunboats and three transports, successfully by the Vicksburg batteries. <coughs> on April the 22nd, he sent six more. On April the 29th, Florida begins the bombardment of Grand Gulf, and McPherson's and McClernand's Corps are in hard times. Back up in Virginia, Hooker sends Major John Sedgwick across the Rappahannock in front of Fredericksburg, while the 5th, the 11th, and the 12th Corps cross the river behind Lee. By 3 p.m., Hooker has three corps in Lee's rear near Chancellorsville. April the 30th, the 13th Corps lands at Bruinsburg in the largest amphibious operation of United States military history up to that time and up to World War II. They march past the rooms of Windsor, and it is at this time that General Banks is beginning to formulate the idea of a corps to Africa. And this, of course, is a very important and significant part of the story of Fort Hudson. We'll hear more about that as we go along. Of course, this army pushes in towards Vicksburg, that is, toward Fort Gibson. They try to capture the bridges before they're burned. They're unsuccessful. On May the 2nd, Stonewall Jackson begins his march around the Union right. The next day, in the Battle of Chancellorsville, things are pretty hot, as depicted, of course, in these Harper's uh, Illustrated newspapers. The Confederates in Vicksburg have retreated now beyond the Big Black River. On May the 4th, the following day, Pembers orders, orders Gardner to abandon Fort Hudson and bring his troops to Vicksburg. He's now beginning to realize what Grant is doing. <coughs> Up until this time, he's been pretty much confused by Grissom's cavalry and several other actions that the Federals used to confuse the Confederates in the area. And on May the 5th, General Banks, who has been spending about seven or eight days in the little town of Opelousas, which is pictured by that little green square, has sent his army forward some, for some reason up the Red River. Now, he's been up the Red River. He will go again next year, 1864. But this is the first trip. Why he went up the Red River, we don't know. I don't think it was to capture the legislature. He did plan to try to get Grissom and maybe make some kind of an effort. He was probably going after Cotton, just like he did the next year. But something very significant happened. He got a letter from General Grant. General Grant sent this letter by code. It took General Banks about six hours to decode it. He, he wasn't sure about this word, Biosera. Well, Biosera is right here in the bend above Fort Hudson. It's in this bend right up here. And what General Grant was telling him was that he was going to establish a beachhead and then send in the 13th Corps, the 20,000 troops. This letter had been penned by General Grant on April the 14th. It reached Major uh, General Banks on May the 5th. So when he got this letter, undated, he thought Grant uh, was indicating that he would be there on May the 25th. So General Banks then proceeds to say, yes, I will be there. And it was this letter that created considerable confusion General Grant had the idea that, that Banks should be there early in May, and General uh, uh, Banks had an entirely different idea about the whole operation. It was based on that erroneous letter. <coughs> now, by May the 7th, which is two days later, after that letter was received, Porter captures Alexandria, and all of Banks' troops now are in Alexandria. Grant remains inactive for a period of about seven or eight days in Grand Gulf, and he's trying to make up his mind here whether he's going to continue the beachhead idea go to Fort Hudson. By May the 10th, he makes up his mind. He writes a letter to General Banks saying, I'm not coming to Fort Hudson. Please come to Vicksburg. And this just throws General Banks into a fit. General uh, Grant writes, while at Grand Duff, I hear from Banks. Says, while at uh, Grand Duff, I hear from Banks, who was on the Red River. He said that he could not be at Fort Hudson before the 10th of May. And then all it was 15,000 men. Up to this time, my intention had been to secure Grand Gulf as a base of supplies, detach McClendon's Corps to Banks, and cooperate with him in the reduction of Fort Hudson. The news from Banks forced upon me a different plan. And then Banks begins to cry, and he says, I simply cannot do it. I don't have the, the, uh, the ships that he's supposed to do it with. I'm dying with a kind of vanishing hope to see the two armies acting together against the strong places of the enemy. The next and that night, Gish's army turns around many troops. They start marching back this long route, uh, back to Baton Rouge, some 400 miles in the direction that they had come. But the next morning, he changes his mind. He says, uh, upon more reconnaissance, it leads me to believe that it's possible for me to join him. So he starts going back 
in the direction of Vicksburg. In order to do that, he has to march from Alexandria down this dotted line over here to the river, a little place called Semsport. Here's Semsport, and his troops are boarding these boats. In the meantime, he sent General Dwight, a character that was kicked out of West Point by having a girl in his room, and a sort of suspicious character all during the war. <laughs> General Dwight proceeds to go by fast steamer up here to Vicksburg, and <coughs> when he gets there, to talk to General Grant, General Grant says the following. He says, while the troops were standing here, and this was between the Battle of Champions Hill and the Big Black, while the troops were standing here, an officer from Bank Staff came up and presented me with a letter from General Halleck. I'm not sure whether this was from General Halleck or maybe from from General Dwight, who made a force that perhaps more scholarship will tell us. But this guy, uh, Dwight, came up and presented me with a letter from General Halleck, dated the 11th of May. It had been sent by way of New Orleans to Banks to be forwarded to me. It ought to be to return to Grand Gulf and cooperate from there with Banks against Port Hudson, and then to return with our combined forces to besiege Vicksburg. Needless to say, uh, he, I told the officer that the order had come too late. General Dwight uh, then proceeded to communicate with his boss. By this time, Banks had made a rather quick trip back to New Orleans. He was talking to General Oldham about organizing the Corps to Africa. This was the year after the Emancipation Proclamation. They were going to use troops against Port Hudson. He got this telegram from Dwight, and Dwight told him that General Grant has promised to come to Port Hudson. And General Irvin, who was chief of staff of Banks, tries to explain this away. He says, the message arrived at headquarters at Sims Plantation on the evening of the 17th and was at once sent on to Brashear City to be telegraphed to the commanding general at New Orleans. The assurance sent by Dwight really conveyed no more than his own opinion. But Banks read it as a promise from Grant and once more convinced that it would be futile to attempt a movement toward Grand Gulf with the limited means that he decided to go to Fort Hudson. So that, of course, meant that General Banks changed his mind again, and these troops, instead of going north, were sent down toward Fort Hudson. Three days later, Robert E. Lee is called upon to make a decision involving the Confederate West. He points out that one or two of his largest divisions sent to Vicksburg would really hardly save the situation, while their removal would make any maneuver impossible for the Army of Northern Virginia. On this same day, Fort Hudson is heavily invested after the Battle of the Plains Store. And the next day, Vicks, the, grand, the grand assault against Vicksburg is launched at 10 a.m. with heavy Union losses. May the 27th, a grand assault against Port Hudson with a loss of some 2,000 Union soldiers. Five days later, Lee decides to send his own army quietly westward. By June, the 9th, Jeb Stewart's cavalry fights a battle at Brady Station. And five days later, the second grand assault is launched against Port Hudson with heavy Union losses. June the 15th, there's great excitement in Baltimore, Maryland, on account of the invasion of the state by rebels under General Lee. Merchants and mechanics organized into military companies for the defense of the city, and business is suspended in bars, restaurants, and saloons. June the 16th, Fort Hudson has been under siege for 27 days, and the rebels under General Lee and the invasion of Pennsylvania reached Scotland, a few miles east of Chambersburg. In Hagerstown, the excitement is intense. Little town 11 miles from Gettysburg are occupied by rebel cavalry, and Lee's army by the 17th is strung out over 100 miles. July the 1st, the Confederates are starving at Fort Hudson. The Confederates in Virginia encounter Buford's cavalry, the Federal infantry formed behind the cavalry screen, and each division blunders into the other, finding itself in the midst of a battle that cannot break off. Lee hurries up support, Meade also rushes forward with reinforcements, and a collision fight develops into a major battle along the road about two miles west of Gettysburg. July the 2nd, 1863. The Confederates have been invested for 37 days now at Fort Hudson. The Battle of Gettysburg is resumed at an early daylight this a.m. Confederate attempts to take strategic positions are unsuccessful and bloody fights occur in the wheat fields, peach orchards, and apple orchards. July the 3rd, Lee unsuccessfully attacks the center of the Union line. At Fort Hudson, a Confederate tunnel is exploded under a Union tunnel and picks and spades and work on a blow into the air. July the 4th, Lee holds a position on the field of Gettysburg, daring Meade to attack. In a driving rain that night, the Army of Virginia starts its long retreat home. Vicksburg surrenders. 
July the 9th, Fort Hudson surrenders. The Mississippi now runs unvexed to the sea, and four days later, Lee crosses the Potomac back into Virginia. This is what it looks like at Fort Hudson, looking north, and that's south. This is about two and a half miles from the old town site. When we say Fort Hudson, we're talking about this active bluff. This is part of the area covered by the Union Army. Now let's look forward. The picture we just saw was on this map taken at this point. Now let's look at it from this point, Gardner's headquarters during the war. It's all silted in here for nearly two miles, but you can see the 85-foot drop. And these bluffs, clearly that's a little bit out of focus. Would you get that right focus, please? Uh, these bluffs are the old landing up here where Fort Hudson was at the time of the Civil War. This river has moved south all the way. That bend of the river is all the way down here now. Now let's take a ride from where we saw the first picture down the Mount Pleasant Road towards Slaughter's Field through the Sunken Road where the 9th Michigan charged across Slaughter's Field into the new Regal Paper Mill. This paper mill fills the battlefield and uh, incidentally, these are highly civilized people, and we hope that we can convince them that the 60 acres or so that they have on that property that's in its northwest corner will do very nicely as a part of our state park up there. Now, we proceed from Slaughter's Field to a point, actually, we proceed uh, through that paper mill property to a point right here. And that's where the National Cemetery is, right out of, right out of no man's land, 3,800 graves. There are three soldiers buried there by the name of George Washington. There are a great many USCT troops there. Here is what the breastworks look like on the paper mill property, which is still in existence. This entire line coming from the National Cemetery going back toward the river is still in existence. We then go around to Gardner's headquarters. This was the site of one of the four towns that existed along the bluffs at Fort Hudson. You find there the remains of an old hotel, a cotton gin, and other evidences of the landing. You can also see the Civil War period. These people have a camp there. We then proceed from General Gardner's headquarters along the Plains Port Hudson Road toward the Salad Port. You notice on General Banks' map here the dark area. That's this depression in the ground. And then we get right behind the breastworks and look to the right of our car winder right here, and we see this line of works. Let's get in our airplane and take a look out of the winter. At Slaughter's Field, right here, the yellow area, this is where General Neil Dow will be shot down. General Sherman will be shot down. The airplane is flying right here, and you're looking down into the field. You can see the breastworks coming out of the woods. Correction. See the breastworks coming out over here, out of the woods, across this place where the vegetation uh, is different from the other places. Across this line there. Crosses over into the woods here, into these woods and out of the woods into this line right here, there, here, over there, the priest cap. The priest cap is there, the priest cap is right here. Now let's look straight down, and you can see how very well you can see that. Here's the priest cap from the back of the airplane. There are two big salient points on the priest cap. You can see one there, one there. This is a place that I'd like to take in you fellows when you came to Fort Hudson. Those big angles are right here. Now let's look at it as the Union artist did. This guy was painting this picture, and he was standing right over here, at the edge of those woods, looking back at this part of the line. And this man right here was looking at those two points on the priest cap, the two points that I'm talking about right up here, the salient angle. Now here's a very significant part of the story of Fort Hudson that I can't too often tell at home because sometimes it's misunderstood, but actually the, the Negro soldier played a very important part here. This is a good friend of mine, Tony Stewart. This old man has lived out here in Slaughter's Field for many, many years, and his stepdaddy was in this battle. There's one other lady that lives out there, Marie Rivers, and her daddy actually is her natural daddy, and he fought in the battle. He's a preacher, an educated man, and she's educated, and I haven't convinced her yet that this is significant American history to the point where she's willing to, to come out and let me photograph her standing by her daddy's grave in the National Cemetery. Tony permitted me to take these pictures. He's standing over about 150 un unidentified, uh, unknown Confederate soldiers put down by some over-eager people. He tells me that this is his grandmother's grave and is definitely not Confederate. <laughs> 
Now, I'm going to use a system in this little presentation where we try to we take this picture and we think it is probably this place. And then we we try to show you a photograph of that. We have a remarkable number of photographs of Fort Hudson. I'm not going to show you any photographs tonight that are fake except two. And you're going to actually three. There's going to be three fake photographs and you'll immediately know which ones those are. Any photograph you see, you're going to know you're looking at Fort Hudson. And this is a story. I can cite you the pictures in the Library of Congress. You get copies for a dollar and a half, or I have the copies. And you're going to see things like in this little story about the Methodist Church being riddled. Well, you've got to be sharp eyed. Now watch. The church is riddled. You can see that. But do you see the horse? See these two characters sitting under the tree? See the guy in the window? Look at this man in the window. You have to look very closely to get the, the interesting features of this. Now here's a picture of the settlement, this big place down here. <coughs> you're looking out on the river, of course, there's a steamboat. And there's another boat. And there's something, I'm not sure what it is. Now here's a Quaker gun in Port Hudson, which is interesting, but look at this steamboat here. I didn't find that until the other night when I was editing these pictures and saw that darn steamboat in the distance. The more we photograph these things, the better things that turn up. Now here's an interesting line of guns. And look at this dude here with a high hat on. And somebody behind the tree waving his hand. Now here's the, the battery from the Richmond. This is an interesting picture. Richmond was badly battered at Fort Hudson. And, uh, but look beyond this tree here. You see those rungs going up the tree. The sailor boys built themselves a signal tower up here. You can't, the, the full picture in the Library of Congress shows that at the top of the tree. But you can plainly see the things they climbed up. Now here's a little moving picture. This is the same battery. You see the same officer here. He's got his hand on his sword. And they're bombarding Fort Hudson. You can see they're ready to pull the friction from them. But look at the cannonball on the stump. It's on the ground here. You can take time to study this and see some of these personalities like this character here with his white underwear. Uh, spent a lot of time. Now, these are pictures of Fort Hudson after the surrender. We're going to have to throw them in because we need this to tell the story as if it were there before the battle was over. But this picture shows the stack of guns and the Negro soldiers sitting by the fireside, and there's six others right here in the original picture in the Library of Congress. Whoever did the copy job didn't give us the best picture. And we think we know that one of the photographers, I, I believe this is one of them here, he's this dude with the derby on, the white horse. You can see him here, a dog is sitting on the back of his horse. Now we've voted on whether that's a dog or just a flaw in the picture, and I think the majority has it that it's a dog. I believe the dog is right here, coming down the side of the horse, but th this is pure conjecture. These are two hospitals at Fort Hudson after the siege. And incidentally, you might note that this, the trees were moving in the wind, the leaves indicate maybe March. So this picture had to have been taken, say, March, February of 1864. Now here's a fake picture. We're not, I want to emphasize that, that the pictures are, are authentic. We're going to animate our scene. We're going to use material to try to tell the story to the public, to try to interest people. And we're going to pick up a typical picture that we think might fill the bill, even though it is not a true picture for us, and you'll readily recognize those. But if it has a caption, other than this one, you're going to know that that is a Fort Hudson picture or whatever the story is, that that caption, if you could come up here and read it, you would see that it pertains to the subject matter. Now, this is not civil war. I just want to take a second tell you that Port Hudson has an ancient cypress forest that was discovered by a naturalist by the name of Bartram. And in 1776, he writes about this. And we found one of these trees two years ago. It's a huge tree. It's professed from LSU. He took a sample. We carbon dated it, and it's 12,000 B.C. And this forest grew under this bluff. Along came the ice age, a deposit, an uplift. The river's come back, and it's washing this away and gave us that beautiful tree. These trees have been written about now for a long, long time. Several colleges not far away from Port Hudson, these professors would come down and give us the benefit of some very scholarly accounts. Now, Port Hudson was fortified by the British. That chief engineer in North America drew this plan. It's a plan for a seated government on the river. And, the, and the, the English plans to defend this bend in the river, the triangular shape, just like the Confederates did. We're going to tell part of our story by trying to also show some live pictures of nature at Port Hudson. This happened in 1861. That was the greatest kind of 
off ahead of the site and met my astonished vision, shooting up at an angle of 45 degrees with the primitive light. Small growth of golden flames seen sailing through the pure ether. Like flying stars, the terrible missile, a 13 inch mortar shell, just seen, and then falling upon the rebels while they scattered death and destruction around. From the innumerable Confederate batteries, very skillfully manned, the cannon shell fell upon the ships like hail. Piercing the awful roar which filled the air, the voice of 10,000 thunders was heard the demonic shrieks of the shells, as if all the demons of the pit had broken loose reveling in hideous rage through the darkness and storm, the gloom, the smoke, the suffocation, the deafening roars the bewilderment of the ship struggling through the darkness presented a scene which war's panorama has perhaps never before unrolled. Suddenly the cry of torpedoes rang out, then someone screamed, their firing chain shot at us. Last in line was the USS Mississippi. The magnificent ship was the first steam frigate of the United States Navy. She had served many years before as Admiral Perry's flagship in his historic trip to Japan. His pilot yelled out, started the hell, full speed ahead. His calculations were immediately found to be erroneous as the ship ran hard aground. Captain Smith tried to back her off using full power, but the old Mississippi was hopelessly stuck. Many of the Confederate guns were immediately concentrated on her. The principal battery was within 500 yards of the crippled ship. Captain Smith casually remarked to his young executive officer by the name of Dewey, later to win fame in Manoa Bay. It doesn't look as if we could get her off. Dewey agreed. Confederate gunners using hot shot ignited the car with slowly. The flames soon threatened the magazines. The ship was almost instantly engulfed in billows of fire. A yellow rose from the rebels as they developed the bursting forth of the flames. Weaving serpents of fire and flying the mast and ran up the shrouds. The order to abandon ship was given. The badly wounded were sent ashore. The scene was one of raw confusion as the flames of the stricken ship lit up the night. A rifle shot tore the howitzer from the main top and flung it clear of the ship into the river. Some of the Yanks jumped overboard and swam to shore. As the fire reached the lava guns, they discharged. From our safety valve came a steady sweep of escaping steam ahead of the terrible din. The land of the Mississippi floated off and drifted downstream. A funeral car, dead men aboard. The scene presented was indeed magnificent. The whole fabric was enveloped in flames. The ship drifted rapidly downward on the current, like a volcanic mountain eruption. The shells began to explode, scattering through the air in all directions. The flaming vision rested every hour on the land and on the ships, until the floating mountain of fire drifted down and disappeared behind the prophet's hour. And now came the explosion of the magazines. There was a big flash shooting upward to the skyline in the form of an inverted cone. For a moment, the whole horizon seemed to blaze with fiery missiles. Then came booming over the waves a peal of heaviest thunder. The very hill shook beneath the awful explosions. This was the dying cry of the USS Mississippi as she sank to her burial beneath the waters of the great river from which she had received her name. Despite the loss of the USS Mississippi and heavy damage to the fleet, Barrett had placed two ships above Fort Hudson to regain control of the river. N.P. Banks, commanding Union General of Louisiana, then attempted to bypass Fort Hudson. He marched west to Morgan City, Lafayette, and by mid-May he reached Simsport and finally moved out towards St. Francisville. One division of Banks and N.P. Army Corps remained encamped at Baton Rouge. A large cavalry force headed by Benjamin H. Grist appeared before the city on May 2, 1863. Their camp was photographed by Wyatt. As General Banks forces approached Fort Hudson from the north and south, the Confederate commander, Major General Frank Gardner, was ordered to evacuate the river port. That night, the traffic was closed, and a small Confederate garrison numbering about 6,000 men was surrounded by a Union army that was to number 30,000 troops. For five days, the great flag troops were pushed back, and finally, on May 26, 1863, Banks was in a position to make a grand assault on the main defense line. That night, the general called together his division commanders to plan the attack for the next day. The morale of the officers and men of the 19th Army Corps had reached a new high. They were all confident. The meeting ended that Fort Hudson would be taken. As the saw of dawn light and the seat of the Vincent Magnolia Corps, the Federal artillery opened up all along the line. From the river, the guns of the Navy joined in a crescendo, hurling shot and shell toward the water batteries and into Fort Hudson itself. In the dense woods, Weiss awaited. At six o'clock, he was sure that General Grover and Agar on his left had already begun their assault, although he could not see them through the intervening forest and 
face. Forming his men in columns of brigades, he advancing the Magnolia Falls toward the front. The regimental banners held high, the blue coated troops marched out of the shadows of the forest into the sunlight. As soon as the enemy came to the ground, the firing became severe. The men scattered, covered charge, firing rapidly, covered large ravines and trees, cut a deadly scarf against the defense of columns. On they came, closing ranks. They stepped over that bed and wounded, running, sliding, slipping down the banks. Isis contains men in its broken ground, amazed at all attempts forcing the concussion back. Four guns on commissary hill of the sky. Front of Stedman's works, fells with timbers laced and crisscrossed in the ravines, made any type of attack difficult, if not impossible. They advanced slowly to a snail's base. Any man who ventured beyond the cover of the ravines and trees was greeted by a withering fusillade of rifle fire, shrapnel, canister, and shell. Several charges against the works were tried by individual units. They were driven back with fearful loss. Another officer wrote, Weiser made three desperate charges on our lines. In some places, our troops got within 15 or 20 yards of our half-built rifle pits, and few of those who got so close returned to tell their comrades what they had seen. Never for one moment did our troops waver or their coolness or determination forsake them. They loaded rapidly, but they aimed slowly and deliberately, firing low. Nearly every shot did its work of destruction. Column after column, regiment after regiment, were hurled against them. Shells and shrapnel burst around them, and the minibars maintained a ceaseless whizzing that like the British squares of Waterloo, they stood like the rock band coast against which the mighty waves of the ocean dashed furiously in vain. The strongest points of attack were commenced against an Arkansas brigade holding an exposed ridge known as Fort Gaston. Here the Union forces, coming from the center and both fronts, hit the fort along a front three-fourths of a mile in length with only 292 Arkansas officers and men to defend the position. A tremendous cannonade at this point had created a haze of smoke, and the attacking line approached within 100 yards before it was discovered. Determined not to waste any ammunition, the Confederate commander would not allow his men to fire until the enemy was within 60 yards. An eyewitness wrote, Then with the yard, the Arkansas troops opened up on them, making many a gap in their lines. But here they had no artillery to face, and after faltering for a moment, made another rush. Again they were met by a deadly volley, and after some irresolution, during which the Arkansas backwoodsmen were making fearful havoc, particularly among the officers, their line broke and they retreated. General White sought to create a diversion for Weissman by ordering his two Negro regiments to move against the extremely Confederate left. This segment of the line nestled atop a steep bluff surveying the lowland adjacent to the Sugar House, where Sandy Creek was crossed by the Telegraph Road. On this block was Colonel W.B. Shelby with six companies of the 39th Mississippi Infantry. In addition, two batteries of six field guns were ranged along the line. At 7 a.m., the 1st Louisiana Native Guards, made up of three laborers of French extraction, moved forward, closely followed by the 3rd Louisiana Native Guards, composed of former slaves. From the block, the field artillery opened with shrapnel and shell from the troops as they plumbed across Sandy Creek and up the opposite bank. Negroes filed to the right into the cover of willow trees, forming their battle lines and began advancing. Cannon fire upon the clearly visible targets threw the ranks into confusion and disorder, and on they came, a screaming, shouting horde. When they were within 200 yards, a column raised from the river opened an enclave fire. Then all the guns began to fire canister, and without order, Shelby's infantry on the bluff began blazing away as fast as they could reload. The Negroes fired one volley. But as the shots began to drop thick along their ranks, the 1st Regiment broke in great disorder and fell back upon the 3rd Louisiana Native Guards, then in the process of fording the creek. Some of the Negroes fell their ground and attempted to swim across a pool of backwater from the river to reach the base of the bluff. The few who made it were mowed down by the rifle. All attempts to reorganize the frightened demoralized troops failed. This portion of the battle had the distinction of being the first engagement of any magnitude between white and Negro troops in the war. The colored soldiers were said to have engaged the Mississippians in mortal hand-to-hand combat, fighting with bayonets. This interesting illustration from Harper's Weekly shows the storming of a position bristling with heavy cannon and scores of confessions of bayonets and rifles. Disregarding heavy losses, the troops are pictured scrambling over the Confederate works to grapple with the Southerners. One indication that the battle did not occur as pictured in these newspaper accounts is that the 39th Mississippi did not suffer a single casualty in the whole of the May the 27th battle. 
signal to attack General Banks. Banks, in turn, waited for the sound of Sherman's attack. But fantastically, Sherman had misunderstood his orders and was having lunch in his tent, passing the time of day with his staff officers. He had been opposed to the attack on the grounds that it was worse than folly and would not succeed. Finally, Banks rode to Sherman's front, and soon the blue-footed soldiers began to assemble. All on this wing of the Confederate line could see the enemy was now approaching. An overwhelming resistless tide of armed men, regiment after regiment, Brigade after brigade moved from the woods and rapidly took their places in the lines forming the assault. More than half a mile that front extends across Slaughter's Field. More than 3,000 yards the dull blue masses deployed. Right on they moved, across impediment, bush, ditch, and stream, over fence and slope, through farmyards, meadow, and cornfield. 300 colored pioneers under Captain Bailey, 4th Wisconsin, lead the attack without weapons but carrying long poles and planks with which to bridge the ditch. Then the thunderous Confederate cannon shake and reverberate through the air, and Beale's men greet the advancing Yankees with a tremendous blast of artillery fire. Bursting shells strike the enemy. Smoking a squatty little pipe, wearing a smashed-in cap, Captain George Abbey turned to his men and said, Now, boys, I want you to stick to the pieces and give the Yankees help. All usable guns are now active. General Dow's 1st Brigade thrust across the field through the young corn and into the entangling poverty of fallen trees. A line of battle with two walls, 165th New York bridges, presented fine targets to the sharpshooters. Confederate guns sliced the New Yorkers and scored with case fire as the rams closed the great encounter of the double loads of cancer. At a range of 150 yards, the infantry were hard to fight and they raked the zoo walks with bucking balls. Colored pioneers dropped their burdens and headed for the rear, crossing three fences which traversed the plain. The 1st Brigade was thrown into great confusion. The ranks were ripped to shreds by the murderous fire. The Zuwalls waited and finally stopped. General Thomas W. Sherman was among the first to fall, struck in the right leg by grape shot ball which smashed the bone. The troops from the 15th New Hampshire carried Sherman to safety as he shouted, Leave them ahead, straight ahead, that on the enemy works. Confederate bullets kicking up dust in the dry ground, General Neil Dow's brigade moved forward on the double quick. About 300 yards from the position held by the 12th Arkansas infantry, Dow was struck in the arm by a spent slug. Seconds later, about north of this, tore through his left thigh. The scene in front of the Confederate works was one of pandemonium. Exploding shells had started numerous fires among the oddity. Blue-coated soldiers were shot down by the dozens as they attempted to scramble over the felled trees to sharpen limbs which protected the Confederate works. Colonel S.D. Coles was bayoneted as he attempted to force his way inside the earthworks. As in other parts of Slaughter's Field, artillery fire had ignited the trees and brush, and Federals had great difficulty in carrying away their wounded in order to keep them from being burned alive. As soon as Banks heard the noise of Sherman's advance, he ordered Agar fall. As the skirmishers of the 21st Maine engaged the Confederates, Agar gave the following order. Now, boys, charge, and reserve your fire until you get into the fort. Give them cold steel as you charge. Cheer. Give them New England. In 15 minutes, you will be there. Press on, no matter who may fall. If 10 men get over the walls, the place is ours. Chaplain's brigade surged forward. Lieutenant Colonel O'Brien called out to his men, Come, boys, pick up your bundles and follow me. The obstacles were so thick that the federal field officers had to dismount and leave the attack on foot. With hoops and yells, the Yankees charged across the battlefield against a murderously hot fire. Screams of iron hit rang out amid the sound of bursting shells and whining shrapnel. Hysterical with excitement, Lieutenant Colonel O'Brien called out, Come on, boys, we're washing the Mississippi tonight. Minutes later, O'Brien fell dead. The Confederate slug penetrated his bulletproof vest. Chapman struck in the face by a bullet threw up his hand screaming, My God, they have killed me. The blue-coated lines finally broke under the terrible pounding they were sustained. Although some fled in panic, most of the Yankees took cover behind stumps, logs, or the rough ground and spent the remainder of the day sharpshooting. At dusk, all action ceased. But the night held other horrors yet. In their attempts to the rear, the surgeons worked feebly over the wounded. A man from the 49th Massachusetts described the scene. On the operating table were the victims who shrieks of agony but partially deadened by chloroform. Ill prepared the wounded all around him for that hours of martyrdom. Seeing the doctors, the sleeve rolled up, 
splashed with blood. Here a pile of booted legs. There a pile of arms was more trying than the horrors of the battlefield. It was now left in engineering skill alone to try a scheme for reducing Port Hudson. The bayonet was to give place temporarily to the pick and spade of science which to supersede their courage. May the 27th was a terrible Union blunder. The failure of the commanders to charge simultaneously the thinly held Confederate works cost them heavily. This piecemeal attack allowed the Confederates to shift their men from one point to another to repel each new attack. The bloody repulse of May the 27th convinced Banks that he must resolve to siege tactics they had struck gradual approaches toward the breastworks. He immediately called in many of the troops that he had left behind to guard the tech. The chap alive New Orleans and Back Rouge. Detachments of contrabands were set to work putting up breastworks to shelter the artillery. The pickets and sharpshooters kept up a continuous fire. On either side, when a man carelessly showed himself, a shower of rifle balls tore up the ground around him. Every night, the mortar boats and field artillery threw a continuous stream of bombs into Port Hudson. By day, the gunboats took over and kept up a constant harassing fire. The Union field guns increased the intensity of their fire and moved up to reduce ranges, firing point blank into the Confederate lines. By June, the first siege operations were begun in earnest. The woods were filled with axes, shovels, picks, and wheel barrels. Timber was felled, hewed, and rubbed at the front to be used in building platforms and breastworks. Night and day for the next two weeks, all of the regiments were engaged in digging rifle pits and zigzags, constructing breastworks and covered ways and mounting guns. Confederate artillery could not fire a gun without having the shot of a dozen pieces concentrated on it. The Union field guns received an inexhaustible supply of ammunition, while the Confederates were running dangerously low. A Confederate officer wrote, Some of our guns were dismounted over and over again, the wheels knocked to pieces shattered into splinters. The enemy's artillery fire was very severe. Many of their guns built sighted fire with the accuracy of a rifle. Ammunition appeared to be as plentiful within as the air. They fired from morning to night and from night to morning, only getting time for their pieces to cool. And the object, however trivial, was aimed at. Another Confederate observed, shot and shell flew through the enclosure of our works in every direction, coming from all sides. Trunks of trees were pierced through and through are slipping into splinters. Their limbs locked off and the leaves scattered over the ground. The Methodist church was ventilated in the most unexpected fashion, balls going in and out without the slightest excuse or even asking, by your leave? The earth was piled up and roads were raked, wagons were smashed, and thieves, horses, and mules were butchered while grazing in the fields or woods. The ride of destruction raised throughout. Had that been any weak nerved people there, they might have searched in vain for an abiding place. The fort became strewn with armed missiles so that a person could not travel the roads or go through the woods or even pick his way through the thick blackberry bushes without stumbling over them at almost every step. The principal damage that was caused by the artillery practice was the destruction of the corn mill. But the post commander quickly fitted up an impromptu mill at the front railroad depot using the steam engine for motive power. To offset the superior Union artillery fire, the Southerners mounted a big 10-inch column braid on a railway car, enabling them to shift the gun's position up and down the track and bombard the enemy all night. The Yanks called the ponderous weapon the Lady Davis. When it was fired, the mighty gun rent the air with strange and terrible shrieking sounds. The Confederates, short of ammunition, used anything they could cram down her muzzle, from flat arms to nails, Bags of knives, railroad spikes, boats, hatchets, ramrods, nuts, and broken pieces of bayonets. One by one, the Confederate cannon was smashed or disabled by the Federals. The fire from the Union fleet was especially destructive, and the rifle 24-pounder, battery number 10, was knocked out. The hot Louisiana sun took its toll. The Confederates erected shebangs, a crude tent erected by means of a blanket covering a ridgepole. Night and day, but especially at night, work was pushed by the Union troops on the siege fortifications at four main points along the line. Most of the labor was performed by thousands of Negro recruits. All digging had to be done from behind cotton bales and hogheads filled with dirty cotton. Slowly the lines inched closer toward the Confederate works. A tunnel under the Sentinel Hill on the far left near the river was begun. Twenty barrels of powder were ready to be placed inside. A second tunnel was dug on Grover's front near the priest's cabin. 
General Banks headquarters at Riley's plantation was photographed and was pictured in Harper's Weekly. General Payne located his headquarters in the sugar mill on the Tom Mills property. As the weary June days wore on, both sides suffered. Life in the trenches was sheer torture. The stifling air, the burning sun, the high humidity, the lack of proper food, and the constant vigilance took that toll. Heat exhaustion and sunstroke, malaria and diarrhea fell many of the troops on both sides. The Confederates, short of everything, suffered most. But as supply of quinine and other medicines were exhausted, their wounded had to undergo operations and amputations without an anesthetic. Confederate food stocks grew smaller and smaller, and the men were reduced to half rations. The Confederates were bombarded day and night. Bank basic supply Springfield Landing received streams of supplies by steamboat and took back the wounded to Baton Rouge. Captain Bailey constructed a huge Cottonvale fortress on the far left. This battery was implanted and the guns began to bombard the citadel. A small party of Confederate scouts surrounded the plantation home of a Mrs. Cage near the battlefield where General Neil Dow was recovering from his wounds on May the 27th. Under a bright moon, the general was captured as he sat astride his horse, attempting to gallop to safety. Opposing sharpshooters fired all day. At night, both sides sent out raiding parties with hand grenades and rifles. The food situation became increasingly worse for Gardner's men. A wounded mule was butchered as an experiment. Horses were also slaughtered. Big wharf rats infesting the place were killed by the men and were considered acceptable food. As the supply of corn diminished, cowpeas were issued. Finally, Banks decided to make another grand assault. At 11.15 a.m., June the 13th, the Federals opened up with every gun and water they had. Shells fell at the rate of more than one second. The Confederates could not fight back, but only lie in their trenches and endure the crescendo of explosions. Banks then sent in a lengthy message in which he urged the Gardner to surrender, saying that the Confederates were hopelessly outnumbered and overwhelmingly outgunned. Gardner's answer was short and succinct. My duty requires me to defend this position, and therefore I decline to surrender. After 12 p.m., Banks called his division commanders to headquarters for final orders. A heavy fog began to drift in. On May the 27th, Fort Hudson had been protected by a mere earthwork, which one Confederate said a fox hunter could have been. But in the 18 days that had elapsed, the defenses were much stronger. In addition to the improved fortifications, the Confederates had increased their firepower, gathering up rifles and ammunition from the fallen blue bells. The gray clad troops' morale was much improved. May the 27th had raised their already high spirits. It was 1 a.m. on June the 14th before the final orders were circulated, which gave the Federals the two and a half hours to make all final arrangements. At 3 o'clock a.m., the artillery opened up. By now, a thick fog had settled over the darkened battlefield, muffling the roar of the big guns. At 4 a.m., the cannon ceased fire, and Union General Howard Lee Payne's division began its forward movement. The battlefield was quiet as the 3rd Division advanced toward the priest cap. Payne walked to the front of the skirmish line and yelled out an order to attack. The men surged forward, but moved only a few feet when the 1st Mississippi and the 49th Alabama gave them a terrific fire. Scores of Yankees fell dead or wounded, among them General Payne, whose leg was broken below the knee by a rifle ball. The Union forces moved on with relentless fury. Some of the troops had to control the storm. It was a critical moment of battle for Fort Hudson. Men of the 1st Mississippi ran forward to hold themselves in the Yankees to battle their defenses. A sharp and desperate Indian fight ensued, in which the Mississippians suffered heavy casualties. The Yankees inside Fort Hudson defenses were bayoneted, shot, clubbed, or captured, and the threat to the priest cap was temporarily lessened. The ground in front of the right face of the priest cap was blue, colored by the uniforms of fallen Federals. Reforming Colonel Wilby Babcock's troops now moved against the right Union face of the priest cap. As the Federal soldiers advanced into the covered way, trouble began. Precautions to muffle the sounds by padding the roads and bridges with cottons had been made, but the Confederates heard the advancing New Yorkers. And as they reached the end of the sunken road and advanced only a short distance, they were shot down with the Germans covered by the hot Confederate fire. The 12th Connecticut, moving forward, ran into the wounded, slipping back. A wild traffic jam ensued. In a desperate 
fighting in front of it is, I'm a Babcock this morning, taking his skirmishes without a leader. The 91st New York rushed forward to launch a grenade attack, reaching the shelter of the ditch that flung their grenades. A few of the missiles burst along the top of the parapet, but the others failed to explode and were thrown back. Despite the slaughter of the sunken road, the New Yorkers launched a furious assault against the breastworks. With reckless courage, the 91st Colorado, Private Samuel Townsend, Company K, attempted to plant the stars and stripes on top of the parapet. Townsend was recognized by the Alabama who shot him down, his own brother. The ground was left with bodies of dead Yanks. As yet, the main assault had not yet begun. Finally, Smith's brigade came into action, making their way through the crowded sunken road amid shouts of confusion and disorder. The men of the 114th New York emerged from the road and delivered a gallant attack which was repulsed with heavy loss. They retreated, leaving their colors in front of the ditch. The rest of Weitzel's brigade moved forward against the breastworks, using the ravines and gullies as cover. Colonel Smith was shot down minutes later. We must not stop on my account. The duty is to be in the advance, Smith told his men. From the Confederate works, I've seen an almost continuous pattern of red flashes, cutting down the Yanks like leaves before an autumn blast. Northerners were falling on all sides. In the face of the terrible fire, the Union was halted and fell back, taking cover where they could. Behind tree stumps, cotton bales are on the face of the parapet. It was a scene of almost indescribable chaos. The regiments lost all trace of cohesion. It was every man for himself. Orders from banks arrived, directing Weissel to storm Fort Hudson no matter what the cost. Weissel immediately ordered Colonel Hart to take in the 1st Brigade. Colonel Simon J. Gerard, 22nd Maine, waved his sword in the air and shouted, Come on, my brave boys, follow me. All I ask of you is to follow me, Hartman shouted. Fifty men shouted yes. The rest set fire. Seconds later, Colonel Hartman and Colonel Gerard fell, fatally shot. The assault of June 14th was a failure. When the darkness fell, the commanders began to remove their troops from the blood-stained field. Tired, sick, wounded, and hungry, the men began to straggle in. They could hear the jubilant Confederates celebrating their victory. Bugles and drums joined by horses and hundreds of reds filled the air with the bonny blue flag and other southern airs. In the federal camps, the scene was quite different. Officers and men talked in subdued tones about their failure and sadly tired their losses. There was just reason for mourning and regret among the Union troops. They lost 1,792 men. Confederate Lieutenant Howard Wright said, the siege had now, on the 16th of June, continued 40 days since the commencement of the bombardment by the fleet, 27 days of constant fighting on every side, and 24 days since the investment de facto had begun. The enemy had shown great resources and indomitable perseverance and undoubted pluck. They had assaulted us on every side and tested every possible weak point. They had dashed up to our breastworks in broad daylight. They had stubbornly pushed their advance through the dense woods on our left. They had endeavored to creep into our lines in the darkness and to surprise us by unexpected onslaughts. But the courage and sleepless vigilance of our men had failed not for a moment. It seemed an impossibility to take Fort Hudson by storm. Line after line, column after column, their troops had rushed up to the very muzzles of our muskets and rifles, only to leave heaps of their slain upon the field. After more than 40 days of bloodshed, backbreaking labor, sharp shooting, filth, mud, heat, dust, boredom, suffering, the sun-blackened men on both sides were sick of Fort Hudson. The rain ceased, the creeks dried up, along the line the men could not shade, uniforms drew up and faded in the sun and rain, were torn by brambles and bushes. On July the 7th, a gunboat arrived, bringing news of the surrender of Vicksburg. The Navy wildly cheered Grant, and every gun in the upper fleet fired a salute in honor of the victory. The troops along the line joined in the tumultuous celebration. With tears streaming down their sun-baked faces, the men began to cheer. The long, solid band began to fill the forest with the strains of the star-spangled band. At 7 o'clock on the morning of July the 9th, the Confederate troops were formed in a long line in the field back of the railroad depot near the landing. Lieutenant Howard C. Wright, an eyewitness, wrote, The enemy's column, watching down the road to the landing, approached to the right of our line, preceded by General Andrews and staff. 
Brigadier General Andrews halted. General Gardner advanced with his sword drawn and presented the help of General Andrews with the following words. Having thoroughly defended this position as long as I deemed it necessary, I now submitted to you my sword and with it his post and its garrison. To which Brigadier General Andrews replied, I return your sword as a proper compliment to the gallant commander of such gallant troops, conduct that would be heroic in another cause. To which General Gardner replied as he returned his sword with emphasis under the scabbard. This is neither the time nor the place to discuss politics. The Mississippi now flows and touched to the sea. Twenty-one months to the day, Union infantry prepared for a final massive attack. It was a place called Appomattox, April the 9th, 1865, Palm Sunday. After four long years, the war was over. These were the words of Lee's last general order. With unceasing admiration of your consistency and devotion, I bid you all an affectionate farewell. You will take with you the satisfaction that proceeds from the consciousness of beauty faithfully performed. President Abraham Lincoln said, with malice toward none, with charity for all, with firmness and the light as God gives us the seed of life, let us strive on to finish the work we are in, to bind up the nation's wounds, to do all which may achieve a just and a lasting peace among ourselves and all nations. Howard Wright, uh, the Confederate officer who we have quoted here so often, wrote, much historical interest will always attach to Fort Hudson from causes other than those connected with the crimson story of its sanguinary fights. Its history is yet to be written, and long after time has softened the asperities of feeling engendered by bitter conflict that common humanity will do full justice to the valor and devotion there so freely displayed and so frequently sealed by death's arresting hand. This gentleman was a newspaper man. Uh, he died four days after Appomattox, a little place called West Point, Georgia. Your visit to Port Hudson, uh, was the point at which Louisiana's awakened to the fact that we had something that we should try to preserve. And our new state park uh, is here in this section of the battlefield. It takes in the green area. It does not take in the area where the uh, Negro troops made the attack. That's our next objective. To take from there over to here. And then try to get a line about three or four feet wide down to the paper mill property and see if we can convince those folks the Regal Paper Mill people, if they will give us or sell to us this area, and that would be tied into the National Cemetery, and we'd have a comprehensive plan that would be worthy of, of national attention. And Governor McKithen has asked me to give to Mr. Gilbert G. Twist a certificate uh, as honorary colonel of the governor's staff. This doesn't require you, Gil, to help us secede from the Union, because I don't think Louisiana's going to do it again. <laughs> <laughs> As a symbolic gesture to this round table, express our great appreciation for your interest in Fort Hudson and letting me come up here to talk to you. And uh, of course, T. Harry Williams expects us to try to do a good job on this. T. Harry is really our inspiration. He's given us the people who have written the, the thesis, have written the books, the Civil War Centennial Commission, and the other support that's really put this thing on the road. And T. Harry would expect me to have something like this here tonight. So I'd like to give this to Gil, and thank you so much. Thank you.